0: If you have your Bibles, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 1. I'd love for you to be able to follow along in the Scripture this morning, so whether you have your Bible or your phone or whatever it is you're able to uh, look at there. If you'll find that text, I'd like to read one verse once again. It was actually the verse that we used at the outset of the service today, and you have that uh, in the uh, bulletin paper. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 5, I am reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you also. If you don't mind, I would also like to read that verse from the King James Version because that just happens to be the wording that I took the title from this morning, so you'll you'll be able to understand that. Verse 5 says this, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice, And I am persuaded that in thee also. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, thank you for this great day you've given to us. Thank you for the privilege of being in the house of the Lord on the Lord's day. We realize, Lord, that you have set apart this day. You have called us to worship. You have given us the opportunity to set aside, for the most part, the burdens of the work week so that we might rest, so that we might worship, and so that we might offer a testimony to the world that we belong to you and this day belongs to you. I thank you again for each person who found it possible and important to be in the service today. Uh, for any of the groups that might be meeting elsewhere with the children, bless them. But I especially pray now here as we open your word, as we wait upon you for the blessing that you may have for us, O oh Lord, please use this time. Set a watch, O oh Lord, before my mouth. Keep the door of my lips. Help me, Lord, to say those things that will honor and glorify Jesus Christ today and that will help draw believers closer to you. Has Already been prayed, I ask, Lord, that if we have anybody here today or at any time under the sound of this message who doesn't know the Lord Jesus, as personal Savior, I pray you will reach out with that grace that want us to yourself. Draw that person. Cause them to understand their lost estate. Cause them to understand that apart from you, we cannot save ourselves. Help us to see the glories of Christ, what he did for us on the cross, how we may be redeemed through the precious blood of the Lamb and be drawn to that in such a way that we open our hearts and accept you by faith to receive the salvation that is the free gift of God. And Lord, again, I pray for your people. Just draw us closer to each other, closer to you, and may we honor you in all that we do now. I pray in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Unfeigned faith. You might be thinking to yourself, as I did really when I titled the message this morning, that's a little bit of a strange title for a Memorial Day, a, a Mother's Day sermon, and if you give me a little patience, though, we will get to this, and I think maybe you can already sort of see from uh, the text how it may fit into our purposes here for a Mother's Day message. But some four weeks, maybe a little bit more ago, I got a text message from someone, and the message a part of the text said this. It said, a friend just shared this on Facebook. And along with that particular message, there was a link and a picture to a story. And the story concerned a man by the name of Paul Maxwell. Some of you may know that name, but it seems that the article was about the fact that Paul Maxwell has become one of the latest somewhat high-profile evangelicals to deny or renounce his faith. Some people would be aware of the fact that some months, a couple of years, whatever it was ago the one I think that really captured a lot of people's attention when this happened, certainly got my attention because I have a number of his books, but Josh Harris, who of course has written the books on dating, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, has also written books on purity. And that, that, that was something that really, I think, shook a lot of people up. So when I came across in my reading here not too long ago, this chapter in 2 Timothy, and I came across this phrase, unfeigned faith. I found that to be a rather compelling expression. Then I noticed something else when we look at this, that Paul has something to say beyond that in the text. You look down towards the end, and he says, and I am persuaded that in thee also. Would you pause for a moment just to think about what that means for a man like the Apostle Paul to say that? Because Paul wasn't exactly born yesterday. This actually, from 2 Timothy like this, is from the the latter part of his ministry. It's, It's at the end. So, if I may put it this way, he is at the pinnacle of experience and wisdom in ministry. And for him to make the statement concerning Timothy that he has been persuaded, you might know something, Pastor Whitcomb often talks about these types of things, but Greek verb tends to sometimes have a way of highlighting action more than time. And in this particular case, this is a perfect tense which would literally be rendered, I have been persuaded in thee also. And to translate it, I am persuaded, helps to bring out the significance of the perfect tense because it signifies something that's taken place in the past, but with continuing results or consequences. What that tells us about what Paul is saying about Timothy is that this wasn't a new opinion on his part. This was an opinion that he had held for years concerning Timothy. And he was convinced deep down in his heart. I'm thinking to myself, you know, if you have the Apostle Paul on your side like that, if he's convinced, this is something that draws my attention, unfeigned faith. Paul was convinced and had been for some time that Timothy, like his mother and grandmother before, were people of genuine faith. That expression is interesting too, unfeigned or as we have it there in the ESV, sincere, translates a word in the original language from which we have the word hypocrite. But it's negated, so it would be literally rendered unhypocritical, unhypocritical faith. In other words, what you see is what you get. There's not a mask. As in the old Greek tragedies, the idea of the hypocrite, it was the idea of someone who wore a mask. And you've seen these if you've looked at Greek theater, or you've seen the two masks, the one for... Uh, expressing the emotions of laughter and sorrow or tragedy on the one hand and on the other. No mask here. When you looked at Timothy, you could recognize that he was the genuine article. This is what Paul is saying in this expression. Well, beyond this, beyond the fact that this expression becomes compelling, I think it drives us to ask another question. And that's kind of what I want to do in the message this morning. Now, the question is too broad, I will confess at the outset. The question is too broad to answer today in in its completion. Uh, You would need any number of sermons, perhaps, to do this. What we're going to do today, we're going to limit ourselves by the fact that our text and our story have to do with Timothy. But for Paul to get to the place where he would make this statement, and then reflecting back on the life of Timothy, what brings this about? How does a person come to be a person of sincere, unhypocritical faith, the genuine article. And I want to suggest two things for you today. Once again, I confess, this is just limited to the text and story, but I hope that the things that we have before us today will be an encouragement uh, and a blessing and help to us. So, first of all, I want you to reflect on God's grace. This is sort of like zooming out in the first thought that I would like to mention this morning. you ever had the experience where sometimes you go to the weather. I don't know what weather you use. It seems like all of them you sort of just have to realize that when they give you the extended forecast, maybe it's more like the extended guess. But in any event, when you look at this, sometimes, especially if you're interested in what's going to take place fairly soon, or if you've got something you want to do outdoors, and uh, they've sort of led you to believe that showers could possibly be happening, and so you want to get a little better idea. And so you look at your radar. You go to the radar picture. Well, of course, they've got a section of real estate there that's quite large. And so you say, well, I'm more interested in in, in figuring out what's close to me. So you you know you 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 zoom in on the thing. But typically they're giving you a picture that's zoomed out. And sometimes, if you're really interested in what's going on nationally, like especially when it gets to be wintertime, I guess I'm betraying. Having spent 31 years in Pennsylvania, <laughs> but, but, when, you know, when it gets to be the winter time, we seem to have a vital interest in what's the weather going to be like. And if they start talking about snow or other things like that, and sometimes you're just interested, especially if you have, I have a son who lives in Indiana, so he's in the Midwest. So I'm thinking, okay, what's going on over there? Because I've kind of learned it, it tends to be coming our way a lot of the time. And so you see this big picture. Maybe you zoom out because you want to see the entire U.S. Well, that's that's the first thing that I want to talk about. It's the zooming out picture. I want to call your attention to verse number 9. So if you look down in your text at this, we'll also read verse 8, just to be sure that we get the flavor of what Paul is saying here. Notice, he says, Be not thou therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me his prisoner, but be thou partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Then he says this in verse 9. Who has saved us and called us with an holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Wait, so what's this saying? This is saying before anything else. This is saying even before the world began, before the ages began, there was an operative influence. And in the course of time, of course, that influence became effective in our lives. What was that operative influence? That operative influence was God's grace. Beloved, I'm just convinced you just can't talk about God's grace enough. Because the older you get and the more you grow in grace, the more you realize how indebted you are to God's unmerited favor, to God's riches at Christ's extent, at Christ's expense. And it's, when you read Paul and you become accustomed to Paul, as I'm sure so many people have here this morning, it's like, you notice something about Paul and grace. And what you notice is he doesn't ever seem to miss an opportunity to tuck this thought in. And sometimes, of course, it's the key argument that he's dealing with. Uh, for example, let's consider some examples of this. Romans chapter 4, for example. Well, when we think about Romans chapter 4, we know he's talking about justification by faith. We know he's just gotten done showing that all the world is condemned before God. Chapter 3, the conclusion of that is that all are sinners and come short of the glory of God. And he wants to point out that we're not saved by our works. We're saved by God's grace. So look at this verse. Now, to him that worketh is the reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. Well, think about this for a moment. It sounds like an impossible reduction to simplicity. What I mean by that is it seems like Paul has oversimplified the case. But you know, it's, it's really true. If you consider all the thoughts of men, or if you consider the religions of the world, it all really boils down to two basic philosophies. It's wrapped in different package, packaging, but it's the same thing inside. It's either some kind of a code of works, which is what man's wisdom teaches. Christianity is the only religion in the world that teaches us that we cannot save ourselves that it is strictly a product of God's grace by which we have been saved. And so Paul says this here. He says, if you work, it's not grace. If you have grace, it's not work. The two just don't agree. They're like oil and water. But he says, to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Let's go to another one. This, of course, is maybe the quintessential one that we've learned and learned and memorized and and memorized. For by grace are ye saved through faith. Even the faith is God's gift, and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works lest any man should boast. Do you begin to get the impression these are just well-known verses, not even talking about some of the little asides where Paul continually tucks this thought in that it's by God's grace and has nothing to do with human effort or works that we may be saved, not of works, lest any man should boast. And I like another one. Some of these are ones that I remember learning years and years ago in a Bible doctrines class. They were well chosen. But again, to get some feel for the context, this is from Titus chapter 3. For we ourselves are sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures, hateful and hating one another. But after that the kindness and love of God our Savior towards man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Why is Paul so intent on making this point? Because he's a gospel preacher. And you really aren't preaching the gospel unless you tell people Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. You can't work off sin debt. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you choose to go that direction and work off that sin debt, you will be forever separated from God in a place called hell. The wages of sin is death. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's a gospel preacher. And to preach the gospel is to preach grace. Because that's the message that the Bible has for us. So, Let's come back to our point again. If you zoom out, if you ask this question, how does any one of us here today, how has any one of us here today, come to a position, if it's true, come to a position that we have genuine faith, that we truly know Jesus Christ as personal Savior, then I'm going to tell you something or I'm going to remind you of something. Let me back up and put it that way. It wasn't our idea. It wasn't any good thing we did. It had nothing to do with our works. It had nothing to do with our pedigree. It had nothing to do with our education. It had nothing to do with who we are, where we were born, or what we had to contribute before any of those things. In fact, before we were even in this world ourselves, there was an operative influence at play. And in the process of time, God brought to bear that influence on our lives, and that is His free grace You just can't magnify God's grace enough. The more you magnify God's grace, the littler you become. And it seems to me like that's the Bible has something to say about that. For to me to live is Christ, to die is gain, Paul says, but we're reminded in another place, he must increase, but I must decrease. And the more you're reminded of this, this I appreciate so much the D.A. Carson song that was selected for this morning, To the Praise of His Glorious Grace. I was reading a story about an elderly Native American. Of course, in this particular man's case, he'd lived many years in sin. And finally, by God's grace, the missionary was able to lead him to the saving knowledge of Christ. And when this happened, of course, his life changed. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. And they approached him, people that knew him, approached him and asked him for some explanation about this change that had taken place in his life. Well, he looked down, happened to notice that there was a a small worm, and he reached down, picked up the little worm. There was also near a pile of leaves, and he placed that little worm sort of on the center of the pile of leaves. And just as quickly as he'd done that, he reached and took a match and ignited the flame of the leaves on fire. Well, you know, we've all tried to burn leaves before, and it starts as a slow process, so it smoldered for just a moment, and all of a sudden, a little bit of a flame burst out, and as those flames burst out, they began to lick closer and closer to the center where he had put this little worm on the leaf. Just as suddenly he reached down and he snatched that worm up off that leaf, held it up for the people who had asked him that question, and then gave this testimony to God's grace. Me that worm. Me that worm. Me that worm. And the more that truth, the utter worthlessness of myself, the utter wickedness and depravity of the human heart, the more that I am reminded of that truth, the more I become enamored, I become delighted, I become excited by God's grace. The fact that God would reach down and snatch me as a burn, as a brand from the burning and bring into my life the sweet influences of His grace that wooed me and drew me to Himself in saving faith. I'm so glad this morning. But we have a lot of other ground to cover, so we have to move along. It's tempting to park there for a longer time. But secondly, we're going to zoom in now. Okay, so we've kind of got the weather map picture, seen the bigger picture of what's going on outside of maybe just our own particular influences, that, or our own particular circumstances, let's bring it in a little bit now. We're going to talk about the story of Timothy and the Scripture and how all of this came about, that he became a person of genuine faith. And you know what? People were involved in that because, wonder of wonders, God uses people. I mentioned a moment ago that Paul was a gospel preacher. And indeed he was. Paul was the one who talked about the fact in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, that he was not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So if the gospel is the power of God unto salvation and you're a gospel preacher, you're sharing this message with people. And you and I need to think this morning of preacher not in the technical sense because so often we do that and and there is a sense of that word in which that's true. You and I this morning are not the Apostle Paul. We're not apostles. And most of us here this morning are not pastors or preachers. But In another sense, a broader sense, Kerux, the word in the original that's so often used in these contexts is translated preacher. And we've kind of given that a technical sense that it didn't always have. It's just a herald. It's someone who tells the message of someone else. That's what you and I do. Now, could I ask you for a moment just to think about this? Who did God... Whom did God use in your life? I hope that we don't ever get too far away from that. You know, I, I I can honestly say in my own life, I think about back to this, and I think God was so good. I grew up as a boy in Charleston, South Carolina, and we lived down in the city. I mean, we lived right in the thick of it. For those of you who know Charleston, we live south abroad. And it got to a certain point where My dad's company had approached him about being transferred to New York. And we had, around that time, we had bought a place out from Charleston a ways, about 20 or a little better miles out in the country. And the only real neighbors that we had out there, we decided that we would just move out there because this transfer was imminent. And then we got moved out there. My dad said, no, I'm not going to New York. And we ended up staying there. And I look back and I think to myself, okay, that was God's grace. That was God's divine working in my life, not only because of those Christian neighbors that we had, but because it kept me out of trouble. Thinking about God's grace, I'm thinking, where would I be today without God's grace? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, if I had stayed doing what I was doing in the context in which I was doing it, I don't know where I would be today apart from God's grace. I shudder to think. I'm not trying to convey to you that I view myself as an exceptionally wicked person as that goes, except that I am an exceptionally wicked person because the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. And it's a fiction for us, I think, so many times to think that we're better, that we wouldn't have gone that route, that we wouldn't have done that thing. Who but knows, really, apart from God's grace. There I was, out 25 miles from my friends, and what did I have? these Christian neighbors, the only ones we really had, and I had horses and miles of places to ride, and I had hunting, and I had fishing. And I look back on it now and I think to myself, well, I enjoyed those things. Those kind of became my hobbies, pursuits, when I had spare time in life. But boy, they sure kept me out of trouble. They kept me out of all kinds of trouble. And I I think back and I think of God's grace, but I think about these Christian neighbors. And I was somewhat startled, I have to admit. Many of you would know the name John Stott. And, of course, he's a writer and a British evangelical commentator. And I was looking in preparation for this message just a little bit once again. I have this little... His little book on Second Timothy—it's—it's—it's it's, it's very concise. It's, it's something that's very readable. You can pick it up, and you don't have to have hours and hours and hours. It's called "Guard the Gospel," and I've treasured that little book over the years. I—I I was sort of amazed when I was looking at it again in preparation for this message. At different notes I'd made in it, and different things that I'd underlined, and I thought, "Oh, I'd forgotten that." And I was looking at this, and. Here this august scholar stops in the middle of his exposition and his commentary to talk about the people that God used in his life. Oh, wow. I want to read you what he said. It's just a brief paragraph. He says, I thank God for the man who led me to Christ and for the extraordinary devotion with which he nurtured me in the years of my Christian life. He wrote me every week for, I think, seven years He also prayed for me every day. I believe he still does. I can only begin to guess what I owe under God to such a faithful friend and pastor. And I'm acknowledging this morning that I owe a debt. Someone told me. Someone wasn't afraid to keep on approaching a proud young man until finally it got to the place where, I mean, I had turned them down so many times about going to church and all these types of things. It got to be a particular Sunday afternoon, and we had a habit sometimes we'd take off from our dock. We lived on a little tidal creek, had a boat. We'd take off from our dock and go on a boat ride. Sometimes we'd stop off at our neighbor's dock to see if he wanted to go. Well, he came with us that particular afternoon. And folks, I'm telling you now how God's grace works in your life. God had so striven with my heart that I was at the place where if he didn't ask me again, after I said no so many times, if I would go to church with him that night, I was going to have to ask him. I was determined I was going to do that, but I still it was still a little easier on me if he asked. And he did. And I went to that place. Now You have to understand, I grew up in a nominal Christian home. I mean, we were taken to church. We just didn't have a gospel-preaching church. So if you had asked me, are you a Christian, I would have looked at you kind of crosswise. I would have thought, what kind of question is that? Of course I'm a Christian. I go to this church over here, and I grew up in America. We're not talking about the dark continent here. That was my concept. It was intellectual. I mean, I... I could recite for you the Apostles' Creed. I could quote for you John 3.16. But going from here to here, beloved, it's two different things, right? I had it up here. I didn't understand that what it took was a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. They asked me to go to He asked me to go to church with them last night. I got in this group. They were meeting at a home at that time because they were looking to form a church and they just hadn't been able to accomplish that yet. And they were meeting in this home, and I all of a sudden, people start asking me, are you a Christian? Do you know if you died today, you'd go to heaven? And I, you know what? I did exactly like a boxer does when you land a, a good solid blow. What do they do? They cover. They don't want you to know they've been hurt because if they, if the opponent smells blood, you know how that is. And I, I did just that. I covered. In fact, I wasn't really honest. I said yes. But it kept working and working and working until finally... One day in July of 1971, I'd been around those people and in that church long enough to know exactly what the gospel was and what I needed to do. And I called out to God and I said, Oh God, I always thought I was a Christian. But if I'm not a Christian right now, I want to be one right now. I want to be a Christian. I don't want to die and go to hell. I want to be a Christian. So I'm conscious this morning that I was dead. First to God's grace, but then there are people. Now let's talk about the people in Timothy's life because that's what Paul does here. First of all, there is Paul himself. I'm going to do it in this order, although in a certain sense this is really not the emphasis that Paul gives in the beginning. But it's I think a little easier for us to do it this way to talk about Paul first. So. It's an understatement. It goes without saying. It's the obvious. It's the 800-pound gorilla. You can't get away from this one. Paul's influence in the life of Timothy. How did it all work? Let's just go on a little journey. Let's see if we can't unravel this. Let's do our best to take the clues that the Scriptures give us and understand how this worked out, that Timothy became a person of sincere, unhypocritical, unfeigned faith, and what Paul's involvement in that was. Well, there's the first clue is in verse number 2. He says to Timothy, my dearly beloved son. You know, I'm I'm sort of amazed that, and, and, and I don't mean any harm by this, but some people explain these expressions that Paul bestows upon Timothy as if they were just sort of terms of endearment because Timothy was so close to him and he has such a relationship with Timothy But if you give them their fullest and pregnant sense, if you take them really in the sense that I think the context of Scripture warrants, they say more than that. Paul's talking about a spiritual relationship as well as a an emotional relationship. My beloved son, look at some other places because it's consistent in the epistles. If you go back to 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2, he says, My own son in the faith. That gets a little almost a little stronger doesn't have the word beloved with it there, but says my own son in the faith. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 16, he talks about my beloved son. So how does this story work? What's really going on? How does Paul come to be so involved in the life of Timothy? Let's go back. Let's do this. If you don't mind, let's turn to Acts chapter 14. And I think if we spend just a few moments here, we'll be able to unravel this and It'll help explain some things for us. So when we come to Acts chapter 14, Paul is in the midst of the second, or the first rather, missionary journey. And you know that back in the previous chapter, the Holy Spirit says, separate me, Barnabas and Paul, for the ministry whereunto I have called them. And they start out on this journey. Eventually they make them, make their way to what we know today as Turkey, Roman Asia. And they're preaching the gospel, and they come to this city, Antioch, and there's problems there. As it seemed like, problems of this nature dogged Paul everywhere he went because these people, the Jews who refused to believe, they became almost as his antagonists. And so he leaves that place, goes to another city, Iconium, leaves that place with some similar situation, goes down to a place called Lystra. And notice it says... Verse number 6, they were aware of it, or aware of it, and fled unto Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lycaonia, and unto the region that lieth about. And look at the next sentence, and there they preached the gospel. You don't expect less, that's exactly what Paul was doing. This was his missionary journey. He preaches the gospel in that place. What's so important about Lystra? It's where Timothy lived. It's where Lois lived. It's where... Eunice lived. Well, some interesting things, and we don't have a lot of time took place there, but they healed a man, a man who was congenitally, Paul did, a man who was congenitally crippled, never had walked, the Bible says. And these pagan priests said, oh, the gods have come down in the likeness of human flesh. And Paul and Barnabas are doing everything they possibly can to dissuade these people who are ready to do sacrifice to them. Just about the time they've gotten that accomplished, these Jews show up from Iconium and Antioch, stir up problems again, and one of the worst things, from a human standpoint at least, that ever happened in the ministry of the Apostle Paul happened. They drew him out of that city and they stoned him. Now look at verse 19. And there came thither... Certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing that he had been dead. I want you to notice something in verse 20 that's really easy to miss if this is not what you're looking for. It says here, Howbeit as the disciples stood round about him. The who? The disciples. Well, how did they get any disciples there when Paul was the first one there and preached the gospel? It says he preached the gospel. Luke just doesn't give us a lot of details about the people who were, who were converted, but that word right there tells you that people were converted in that place because the disciples were standing by. About the time they thought he was dead, he stood up. Boy, I'd have loved to have been a fly on the wall that day. How about you? I mean, I'm thinking about Timothy. I'm thinking about the likelihood that Timothy observed these things and saw what happened. I'm thinking about the how this would have been seared in his in his memory about this fervent, gospel preacher who came to their town who who preached with unimaginable fervency the grace of God and saving faith in Jesus Christ and that Jesus Christ was the Messiah in whom as to his coming was concerned he Lois believed, Eunice believed and they had taught him disciples Then Paul leaves and goes to a different city, finally turns around and comes back. How's that for courage? I'm thinking about impressions on Timothy. How's that for courage that the man that just got stoned in your city goes to the next place and preaches the gospel and then says, you know what, we we should probably circle back because we've seen people saved in these cities and we need to be certain that they're established and they're confirmed in the faith. And he comes right back to Lystra. Lystra. I'm thinking to myself, this is a man's man. There's something different about this man. But it says confirming the souls of the what? Disciples. So they left disciples in that place, a church in that place, because the next, in the next verse, verse 23, And when they had ordained them elders in every church and had prayed with fasting, they commended them to the Lord on whom they had believed. They left the church in that place. Well, now, what would you say? Two years, maybe, have passed. We're going to turn to chapter 16. We only need to look at the first three or so verses here, so hopefully we can do this without too much uh, bogging down. Then he came to Lystra. So they, they decide they're going back. They're going to go back and visit these places again. And now it's roughly two years later. And Paul and Silas are going. And it says, They came to Derby, verse 1, and Lystra. Behold a certain disciple. Oh. This is Luke. Luke wants to introduce us to, to Timothy at this point. This is our first meeting with Timothy. Timothy who will loom large. Timothy to whom two pastoral epistles will be written. Timothy who will become... Not only Paul's most beloved protege, but has become his son in the faith. Luke wants to introduce us to him so that we're prepared for the place and the role he is going to play in the unfolding of Paul's ministry and of the church. But he just doesn't tell us much about the story. He just says a certain disciple was there named Timothy. Well, if you put all of this together, I hope you see the trail I'm trying to lay out for us here. Paul's talking about he's his own son in the faith. Paul preaches the gospel on his first missionary trip to Lystra. Paul comes back two years later. Timothy is one of the disciples. The most satisfying conclusion I think that you can place on the biblical record is, is that Timothy became a believer as did his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois when Paul came and preached the gospel in that place. Now look what else it says, because it tells a little bit about some of the challenges that existed there. They're going to become germane to where I want to close this message. A certain disciple is there named Timothy, the son of a certain woman which was a Jewish and, Jewess and believed. That basically just means a believing Jew. But notice his father was Greek. Really no nothing there, just his father was Greek. So it was a mixed marriage. Eunice's mother, a Jewish woman, devout it would seem, and this man unnamed. Paul just tells us this, and the only reason he tells us this is because it's relevant to what happens next when We read that Paul determines it's best to see Timothy circumcised so that that's not a problem, a stumbling block to the mission and the Jews in those parts. But now notice, verse number 2 says which was, well, this is not Timothy's father who was Greek. This is Timothy. It's talking about in verse 2, Luke tells us, which was well reported of by the brethren that were at Lystra and Iconium. This is kind of interesting because here you have another tense that has something to say. It's imperfect, which highlights continual action. So when Luke is telling us the story, he says, here's what was going on. These people, these other disciples, they kept testifying to. They kept testifying to Paul about Timothy. Timothy in the two years. Beloved, there's a lot of challenge in this because we're told to grow in grace. And if there's somebody that you can look at right here who grew in grace, it's Timothy. In the two years that had transpired, he had developed such a reputation for Christian integrity and fervency that the people in his own city, Lystra, and the people in Iconium, the nearer city, these people, when Paul came back, they kept recommending, they kept telling Paul about this young man. And it seems like it clicked. There's something about God's grace that's going on here once again. It clicks, and Paul looks at this young man, and he becomes determined. Paul was interested. He wished, he desired to have Timothy go forth, to go out. In other words, leave, go on the journey with him, it says in verse number 3. And then it says whom he took and circumcised because of the Jews which were in those quarters. They all knew that his father was Greek. His father had been a Greek. They knew this. So what what picture do you see? And I need you to see this before we come to the last part of this message. You see a mixed marriage. You see a home. You see two devout women, but an unsupportive father. Unbelieving father. Does this begin to magnify a little bit even more in your sight, how God uses mothers and grandmothers? These are challenges, beloved. This isn't easy. Raising children isn't easy, period, right? But when you think about the fact that you're a mother in the home and you don't have a supportive husband, I say this because although apparently the father did not prevent them from teaching Timothy the Scriptures, He didn't allow Timothy to be circumcised. So he wasn't altogether supportive. This brings us to where we need to get to next because when Paul is talking about Timothy, think about this. Again, this is another of these expressions. He said, I trust to send the Lord Jesus to send Timothy unto you that I may also be of good comfort when I know your state for I have no man like-minded. Think about that statement. No man like-minded who will naturally care for your estate. For all men seek their own, not the things which are Jesus Christ, but ye know the proof of him that as a son with the Father he hath served me in the gospel. Him, therefore, I hope presently to send, so as soon as I shall see how it will go with me. And we're talking about Lois and Eunice. And... Think about these women. and We need to get a final footnote to this. So if you'll turn back to our text in Timothy, let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. What did they do? What influence? How did God use them in Timothy's life? Well, this is what we read. Beginning in verse number 14, Paul says, But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned, and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. Paul's talking about himself, but he's talking about Eunice and Lois. That becomes clear in verse 15. And from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. Why expose someone to the scriptures? Because you believe that the scriptures contain a certain indispensable wisdom. It's not the wisdom of man. The wisdom of man is that you can work your way to heaven. The wisdom of God is, no, you can't work your way to heaven. Only Christ saves. Salvation is by grace alone, through Christ alone. The wisdom of the scriptures. And what does it say that they did? From a child in this home where there was a a relatively unsupportive father, where he wasn't a believer. These two women pooled their efforts that from infancy, this is a a really interesting expression here because it uses the word brephos in Greek, which is a reference It can actually be used to a child even before the child's born, while the child is still in the womb. That's the young implications that are involved in in this word brephos. From infancy, from childhood, then he does something else that's rather interesting in this verse because he says, you've known the Holy Scriptures. But he doesn't use the typical word here for Scriptures, which would be writing, the sacred writings. And I think that's how you have it before you, the sacred writings. But he actually uses, not graphe, not the word for writings, the word that's typically translated Scripture. He uses the word for letters, like your ABCs. That's gramma in Greek, and that's the word that he uses. He said, from a childhood you've known the sacred letters. That's kind of interesting because if you were devout and you really wanted to teach your child about the things of the Lord because you believe that the Scriptures possess the wisdom of saving faith revealed in them, how would you teach your children about those things from the beginning? What better way than to teach them how to read with them? which is the rather interesting suggestion that the Lutheran commentator Lenski makes on this passage. I think he may be one of the few people to do this. And a number of other commentators pick this up, that Paul doesn't talk about the usual word for the Scriptures, even though that's what he's talking about. He calls them the sacred letters, which sort of brings up the idea, did these women go about what they did from the earliest of times, teaching him his ABCs from the Greek version of the Old Testament? It's really an interesting thought. It's an intriguing thought. So wait. Even though Paul is the gorilla in the room, even though Paul's the one that everybody thinks about, there's somebody before that, two people before that. There's a grandmother by the name of Lois. Think about our society and think about a situation where you have an unsupported father. In fact, we didn't really take time, and there isn't time to do anything with it now, but if you go back and look at that language, His father had lived as a Greek. Sort of the suggestion is there that perhaps he had died at some point, passed off the scene. So now if that's true, thinking about the challenges of this home now, thinking about a mother who's got to be supportive, thinking about our culture, what that would mean. The mother goes to work and the grandmother has certain opportunities to babysit. And these two women, because they're women of faith, they too have trusted Christ when Paul has come to Lystra and preached the gospel But they have laid this foundation in this young man's life by teaching him the sacred letters, by teaching him the scriptures. I can't say enough, really, to encourage ladies here today. You have a role that is, humanly speaking, in the way that God has structured the home and the way our society is, you have a role that really is second to none. I mean, you have the first shot. You spend the most time. And these women took full advantage of this. I want to bring you something quickly in closing, just to kind of put this right in a current context. About 10 days ago, our very own senator from South Carolina, U.S. Senator Tim Scott, had been called upon to deliver the State of the Union response the response speech after president biden spoke in that speech he said a number of things if you haven't had a chance i think it's about 14 minutes maybe and you can look at it it's it's well worth your time but after talking about the fact that he is a christian in the speech he makes this statement i am standing here can you imagine a man on national television can you ima- imagine a man who's been tapped to give the response, the official response of the opposing party. And this is what he stands up and says. I am standing here today because my mother has prayed me through some rough times. Oh, wow. That's a a man who's humble. That's a man who knows how to recognize the influences of the people in his life. I quickly want to close with telling you a little different story, though. Tim Scott is right in our own context, but hundreds of years before another story takes place, but you could replicate this story, really. If we had time, you could tell story after story after story. But in this particular case, the sun has just come up and began to dawn across the North African harbor, As a woman by the name of Monica makes her way down to the docks. Monica is the mother of the man whom history will present to us as Augustine of Hippo. Or some people just say St. Augustine. She's burdened. She's concerned. Why is that? She's woken up early that morning and sensed that the direction of the wind has changed. Why is that important? Because with the change of the direction of the wind, it would be possible for the vessel that she knows has been waiting for days for favorable winds in the harbor to depart from Rome, for Rome. And her son has expressed an interest in being on board that vessel. The second thing before she goes anywhere is she checks his room, and her heart sinks because his room is empty. It would appear that Augustine has been somewhat Disingenuous with his mother. Because she had heard him speak of taking this vessel to Rome, begged him not to go. You know anything about the youth of Augustine? It was a wild, dissolute. This woman undoubtedly had all kinds of furrows in her brow and wrinkles in her face with the burdens that that boy gave her and how she kept beseeching God and beseeching God that he would come to be a Christian. And so she makes her way on down to the docks because she wants to check one last thing because Augustine has told her, oh, no, I I really wasn't talking about going on board the ship myself. It was a friend, and I was only interested on behalf of my friend. So she goes down to the docks. She inquires, and yes, Augustine had been a passenger, they told her. She trudges back up the hill towards home, just stooped with the burden compounded now, if you can just imagine this, compounded now with the thought God hasn't answered my prayers. I prayed, I prayed, I prayed that he would not do this. I prayed, I prayed for him so long, so fervently and now he has gone. Well, Augustine does indeed get to Rome, but he's not in Rome too terribly long before he learns about a professorship that's available in Milan, a professorship in rhetoric and he goes, but He goes for the professorship, but the real reason he goes is because God is directing him there. And he meets a man, a godly bishop in that place by the name of Ambrose and something like Paul and Timothy it was, somehow the two click and it's not long before Ambrose it becomes a trusted person. Someone that Augustine would talk to and he unburdens his heart and he tells him about the, the wreck and all the wasted years in his life. And Ambrose has one word of advice for him. Above all else, he says, read the epistles of Paul. So it is that we come to a certain day, and there in Milan, Augustine is gone with his friend Olypius. They sit down on a bench in the garden. Between them is Paul's letter to the Romans. They might as well start with the first, right? At least in the English Bible. But before they ever have a chance to start reading in the epistle to the Romans... Something passes between them. We're not privy to what it was. We just know something passes between them and it reminds Augustine of all the wasted years and he becomes so emotional that he stands up abruptly. He doesn't want his friend to see his weakness. He doesn't want his friend to see his tears and he 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 leaves for a further distant place in the garden where he, un, unbelievably, sits down under a fig tree. Think about Nathaniel. His tears begin to flow and all of a sudden, as he's there and he lets his emotions pour out, he hears the voice of a young child. And it's loud enough. This young child who's in the neighboring home to the garden cries out, take up and read, take up and read. And Augustine stops, he hears this, he doesn't know what to make of it because he racks his mind and he says to himself, I know of no child's game that has those words in it. And so he comes to the conclusion that those words are meant for him. Take up and read. Immediately he goes back to the bench where Olypius is. He determines that he's going to read the first thing that he sees and the first thing that he sees when his eyes look down at the book of Romans. It happens to be open. It happens to be open to chapter 13. These are not the verses that you and I would typically use in leading someone to Christ. But he reads those verses at the end of the chapter. Let us walk honestly as in the day, not in revelry and drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust and strife and envy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. And it's like a ton of bricks hits him. These verses are meant for him. They talk about revelry. They talk about passions. They talk about drunkenness. And it pierces his heart. And all of a sudden, exactly what Paul would talk about conversion, to open one's eyes, to turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan unto God, it happens. He wants to tell Olypius about it, but you know what? Something has happened while he's been away. And Olypius interrupts to tell him that he's had a similar experience too, only the verse that he found was in chapter 14. And the two of them, I just want you to see this, they come to a realization very quickly And I'm going to let you see this in Augustine's words. He said, Then we went to my mother, who incidentally had followed him to this place. Then we went into my mother. We related how it all took place. She leaped for joy and in her triumph blessed him who is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think, for she perceived that God had given her more than she was wont to beg for by her pitiful and most powerful groanings. And it turned out that God had indeed honored the sage words that a godly man had spoken to her years before when she went to confide about her son, when she went to ask for counsel concerning her wayward son. And this man said this to her, Go thy way, and God help thee, for it is not possible that the child of these tears should perish. What am I trying to say to you this morning? He couldn't outrun those tears. He couldn't outrun those prayers. And before any of that ever happened, He couldn't outrun the grace of God. But for those of you who are here this morning as mothers and grandmothers, let us not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap If we faint not. Father, thank you today for the inexpressible privilege of sharing your word with people, for the joy of seeing stories in the Bible and stories from elsewhere of people who have found genuine faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you, dear God, for the people that you've used in our lives. Thank you more than anything. For our sweet Lord Jesus, for his grace, and for your love, bless us as we close this service. And again, our prayer is for any who don't know Christ to be drawn to him. For I pray in Jesus' wonderful name, amen.